So, so I'm glad you brought it up, MFC, because what? that's <laughs> <laughs> who's ever because... glad about that. Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 131. Hello, guys. Uh, so uh, I'm still iPhoneless, but at least according to the UPS website, by the time this show hits our listeners' podcast player of choice, I should have my phone in hand. Should. Argo, your your wife was supposed to have hers today, right? I think at one point her ship date said it would be around today, but I think it's I think now it's saying the next couple days or something. It so we'll see. Good things come to those who wait, right? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least there haven't really been any big outcries about issues with the hardware, right? Well, there was the green bar of death. I have not heard that one. Well, there there have been a couple little things, but there's nothing. There's not really a big gate, I think, yet that I've seen. They haven't been bending in people's pockets, or the screens coming out yellow like the Pixel XL is having issues with. They haven't caught on fire, as far as I know. So, these are all good signs. Yeah, I think there's minor issues here and there. Mac rumors seems like every other day there's like some article about some issue that people are having, but. Yeah, yeah there one article on Call to Mac. Uh, the subtitle is, should we call it Green Gate for the <laughs> Green Line of Death? Oh. Uh, so what is this green line? Is it like a, a thing with the screen where it just is all black but a green line or, or what? I'm not really familiar with this. There's just basically a, a vertical green line that's like stuck into the screen. Hmm. Yeah, so if that happens, I think... You're supposed to just take it back to the store yeah, and get I it mean, replaced. I, I think if this were happening to a lot of people, then it would it would be a bigger deal. But I feel like, you know, people are kind of grasping at straws for for their headlines. And that's what <laughs> websites do. They get money by advertising, so they want to get clicks and views and stuff. Like there is an article today on Mac Rumors that was like there's this app that snips off the the top of your image to create a base i think it's called like notchless or something like that <laughs> and the, the point is to give you a, a desktop background you can or an image that you can use for a desktop background that hides the notch oh. and the headline was apple approves this app that hides the notch and i'm like why is that even news <laughs> i've been so busy i haven't looked at mac rumors quite so much lately yeah, I don't know if you're missing that much. <laughs> no. But, I don't know. I, f- I feel like this conflation between the App Store review guidelines and the human interface guidelines happens a lot. And with the notch, it's been happening a bunch. Like It's like, oh, Apple says embrace the notch. Are they going to approve apps that don't embrace the notch? And I'm like, yeah, of course they will, because there's nothing about it in like the the App Store review guidelines. It's just like their best practices document or whatever. Like this is how you should do UI stuff. That's what the human interface guidelines are. Well, and I don't think users are going to actually 
care for apps that don't embrace the notch. They want something, once they get used to it, and I've heard that in person the notch isn't so bad. It's not so noticeable. Well, and yeah, I mean, and Apple's trying to guide developers in the right direction so they don't find that out the hard way after users don't download their app because it doesn't have a notch or because or it tries to hide the notch or something like that. But even some of Apple's apps hide the notch. The music app, when you bring up the now playing card, hides the notch. And it looks goofy, like when you're app switching, because there's this like big black area at the top of the screen. So, I mean, even Apple doesn't always follow their guidelines 100%, because sometimes you make it makes sense to make exceptions. And when you're Apple, I guess you've earned the ability to, to figure out when that is for you. But, I mean, if you're an experienced app developer, I think you probably, you know, have the ability to discern okay, maybe maybe we shouldn't follow the guideline to the T right here because our app is different from the, you know, the 90% of apps that the guidelines were written for. So I know that's been kind of a pet peeve of mine over the past month or month or two with people like, oh, Apple's not going to approve notch stuff, blah, 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 blah. And so it's like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... I'm waiting for it though. I I feel like you're a notch skeptic. Somebody out there is going to do something so bad, so stupid that it becomes an app store review guideline and ruins it for everybody else. That's how guidelines are made, right? Somebody goes off, does something they shouldn't do, then somebody else comes back and says, "No, this is our new guideline. Don't do that." Yeah, but I don't think like UI stuff like that is going to be the type of thing that makes a new app store review guideline. Like I've got this. So my, my kids on clearance last year after, you know, the every all the Christmas light stuff was on sale. There is these, quote, app powered, unquote, oh, yeah. uh, Christmas lights. And they basically let you choose like a couple patterns or whatever uh, from your phone but the app that they have on it is like the most atrocious looking app ever. Uh, there's like a help section that is basically like they cut out part of a PDF and just pasted it into this <laughs> screen. And it's just like a full screen, just like image. There's no UI kit and no semblance of like, you know, trying to have a consistent UI. And then the other screens of the app are all it's like someone just someone slapped, just like slapped together. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't even use like navigation bars or anything like that. It, it looks horrible. <laughs> I don't know what they were, <laughs> what they were thinking. Um, but like if, if, if apps could get rejected for not following the human interface guidelines, this one surely would, would have, you know, run afoul of that in the app store, but <laughs> it would have created a few more guidelines. Yeah. yeah. So I, yeah, I don't think they're going to start enforcing their interface guidelines users are just not going to download the apps and that'll be the end of those hopefully as long as there's good alternatives yeah yeah i mean something like a calculator app it's going to have to embrace the notch because there's a hundred of those or more on the app store but if you're say facebook you can do whatever you want with that notch but even facebook you know for a while they they were using the hamburger menu and which was like explicitly against Apple's guidelines. And eventually Facebook's like, wow, well, it looks like we actually get more engagement if we use <laughs> a bottom yeah. bar. So, I mean, it, it's not just like 
Apple saying that this is the way you should do it, the, the guidelines are written to kind of coax you in the direction of things that will be good for your app and good for the users. And eventually, if, if it's not and there's a better way, you'll figure that out and you'll change it because you want your app to be better or because you'll make more money for because of more engagement with your app or, or whatever the reason is. I mean, yeah. they're not it'll pulling, happen somehow. They're not pulling these guidelines out of thin air. They They have some kind of basis for why they're out there. No, Johnny I didn't get like a bad haircut and was like, I'm gonna force this on the new iPhone or something like that. It was <laughs> <laughs> They had <have> their reasons. <laughs> yeah. They they do tons of testing and they they know a lot about UX design. Obviously that's why their products are as successful as they are. And a lot of it comes down to you gotta first know the rules before you start breaking the rules. Right. <laughs> Alex the Rebel. <laughs> well, I mean, in general, in design, it's like, you know, you learn the fundamentals, uh, you kind of follow those practices, and then you, as you get more experience, you know when you can bend. Yeah, exactly. Bend the rules and when you can break them. You know, sometimes breaking the rules is, you know, creates a new trend, but it's, it, it takes experience to know when and where to do it. And I think that's part of the reason why they don't reject stuff that goes against the human interface guidelines, because it may, they may have come up with a better way to, to do stuff. And it, we just need to to see, you know, oh, actually, there's this cool new UI widget that'll, you know, make things way awesomer and stuff. So, yeah, and it, I guess in some ways, the same rules apply to things like app architecture, right? You got to know about MVC before you can break MVC. You got to know why MVC is a good thing and why it's not necessarily always a good thing. Well, yeah, and I think, yeah, there's been a couple articles about this recently, uh, just kind of app architecture and iOS in general. Um, and it seems like a lot of, you know, there's all these exotic different architectures out there, and there's kind of, some of these articles are kind of like a backlash against that. They're like, do you really need to do Viper? Like, is that really good for anyone? <laughs> well, the answer to that question is always no. <laughs> but there may be there actually there may be an app where Viper makes sense because you know it matches exactly with what their you know how their app needs to be structured or whatever. Um, no, not so. <laughs> I, I, I don't think any app that I, I've worked on, you know, is screaming I need Viper, but. Uh, <laughs> One one of the articles I think that started this all was Alexander Vachik. I'm gonna say is how to pronounce his name, but it was called Much Ado about iOS app architecture. Um, and he basically wrote this article that was was like, you know, there's all these crazy things that are going on MVP, MVVM, Viper, Redux, and I and I know so you you guys like some of those things, um, but. I think his main argument was like, you know, MVC is a good solid architecture and UI kit and app kit were written kind of for MVC. So, you know, it, at least consider MVC for stuff that you do because it may just kind of fit better. And in a lot of Apple's sample code um, or examples you find on Stack Overflow encourage really bad practices within you know, Apple's MVC framework that they've laid out. 
And just because, you know, the sample code is horrible doesn't mean that you need to, you know, include a 600 line, um, you know, table view delegate in your view controller. That's not good MVC design. That's not good any, you know, I mean. That's kitchen sink design. You just yeah. throw, throw everything in there into one class file and compile it. Right. And that's when we hear about the massive view controller. You know, that's kind of the the first joke that everybody makes when they start talking about iOS app architecture. And a lot of that just comes from this crappy sample code that's out there that people think that's the way to do things. But uh, you, you can you can do MVC well in an iOS app and not make those mistakes that are that are out there and not have massive view controllers. Well, I tend to take the perspective that MVC is really a presentation tier pattern, not a application pattern. So it's, it's just that top level and, mm-hmm. and you've got to, you know, delegate or, or decompose your application into two layers or, or smaller components. But, you know, a lot of it depends on the size and complexity of the app. You know, if you're building a, a really simple app, you know, maybe putting all the code in inside the view controller is, makes the most sense. You get yeah. to market faster and, you know, I, I you know, maybe it's a, a tip calculator or something like that. You know, if you went all the way to the Viper for that, you know, you're probably over engineering. But yeah, if you're if... working on a, a massive application, like, you know, the, like something the Omni Group would put out, then um, you're probably going to have a whole lot more separation of concerns. Yeah, I feel like if you just like write code, you know, follow, you kind of do clean code architecture, you use solid principles, and you start off with just like Apple's MVC, either MVC as Apple has laid out will work just fine, or you'll evolve into something else. Yeah, and I, I definitely like the approach of evolving into an architecture as opposed to design by pattern it's like i mean i know there's some companies out there that say oh yeah we're a company and we do viper or we do you know whatever but eh, i feel like that's probably not a great approach from like uh, getting the best code for a given app it may be a good approach for getting people who are all you know cross-trained and there may be benefits to that so hold on so one thing i need to back up on Argo, you said things about solid principles. That doesn't mean just like a a non amorphous uh, principle. It's it's actually an acronym that. Oh uh, yeah, I'm aware. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not for you. It's for our listeners. Um, okay. So, solid is a is in this case is an acronym for how you do software design, and Wikipedia has a really good article on solid software design, but. Yeah, the one thing is that when you go with kind of an emergent architecture, everybody's going to have their own emergent architecture. And these things like MVVM and MVP, and I won't say Viper, but they do provide a common language and a common idiom for people to go about designing code. And that way you don't have to say to yourself when you open up a file, well, who created this file and what was their thought process? You kind of just you kind of just know consistently throughout your app that this piece of the app is going to be in this file and this one's going to be in another file and and it just works. 
And that comes in handy when you're a consulting company uh, like like our company, where we work on dozens of different applications, and we have you know about a dozen employees. So having a kind of standard or common starting point that you know roughly where the code should be and how things should be named, you know, it makes it a lot easier to for people to kind of swap in and out on projects and help out. Uh, with different things and yeah, I would uh, argue you know, that, collaborate. I would argue that it, it even helps me as a single programmer working on a project that I can just pick up some code that I had written, say six months ago and just kind of already know where I need to go to look for certain things. Right. And you know, I, I think, you know, I think about product companies where you're focused on one product at a, at a time. And, you know, in that case, an emergent architecture, really kind of makes sense but um i think it's also important that you understand you know the, the different patterns and and the pros and cons of each and you know uh, martin fowler's refactoring book i think said it best you know you want to refactor to a pattern you don't want to start with a pattern you you find opportunities for improvement and slowly refactor towards a pattern well, but that's that's kind of describing emergent design, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. But my point is that you know it's you know there's a, a balance between the academic approach of understanding the patterns and you know the pros and cons. Well, yeah, there's there's some pragmatism if you're running like a a giant company or a company where you work on a bunch of different things. Or yeah, there's lots of. I guess different scenarios where different things make sense. Yeah, there there was this period of time where design patterns were something that uh, people didn't want to talk about um, because it wasn't cool anymore because we were all agile and test-driven and emergent design was the only way to go. That's because Java ruined it for everybody. Uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but it's it, it was definitely, you had people who were designing by pattern. You know, it's like, well, you know, people putting design patterns on their resumes is, is kind of an interesting <laughs> idea. And I, I've probably seen a few of that, a few of those resumes recently with MVVM and, you know, Viper or whatever. But it's, we, we, we went away for that for a while, from that for a while, and um, you know, when we started doing iOS development, there wasn't really a lot of discussion of architecture. And, you know, I, I like that all these articles are being written and, you know, they don't have to agree. There's a lot of different viewpoints and there's no perfect architecture, you know, or, or we wouldn't be having this conversation. But, you know, at least the community is talking about it and trying to think of ways of building more robust applications. Yeah. And common patterns within doing that so so is there a scenario where you would say all right i i can tell this app is going to need some type of un- for upfront architecture that we should do something like this like where would where would that happen in your mind i think i you know most of the apps that we work on not all of them but most of them tend to be fairly dependent on on the network you know there's usually a rust api of some sort so I tend to start with a layered architecture. You know, we've got our presentation layer, we've got our application logic, and then we have kind of the resource layer with where the networking and I.O. 
happens. And really any application is going to have something similar, just to what degree. And then, then I start thinking about, okay, how does the model and the presentation stay in sync? And there's a few different ways to do that. And, you know, there's a, some really simple ways to do it. And for simple applications, you know, the simplest way, it, well, it doesn't really matter, simple or not. It's, you always want to do the most simple solution that works or that mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, but as you get into more complex scenarios where you've got a lot, you know, you might have an API where there's multiple calls in the order in which those happen and, and potential failure points um, can start getting really messy. Then you start looking at different pattern. You start looking at things like Rx or, um, you know, promises or something to try and simplify the, the, all the async calls. Uh, so you can manage that better and understand that code. Uh, state management is a big part of really a lot of these architectures are trying to solve state management. Like where does it happen? How does it happen? How do you let all the pieces of your application know that state has changed? Who's allowed to change state? Um, you know, some would argue that the majority of bugs in application is just bad state management. Well, okay. So I feel like to some extent, like, uh, a lot of the architectures that we talked about are kind of, you know, just maybe MVC, but with an additional layer here or there, a little more complex. So React is a whole, it's a whole different. Yeah. React, FRP. Yeah. It's yeah. A, all that stuff. Go ahead. Yeah. But don't lump React and FRP together. They're not, they're not the same. They both share. They're not the same, but they're, not names. All... they're cousins. <laughs> they share five letters. That's about it. <laughs> All right. So, so like, what what makes you decide that it's worth it to, you know, do RX Swift on a project over think, like MVVM or MVC? I, like, what 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 makes you start a project there? Other than you're trying to learn RX Swift. I think if you look at the UML diagrams for most of these design patterns, they look very much, you know, structurally very much the same. You mm -hmm. know, the differences tend to be like how they communicate, or, you know, how you name things or your philosophy of, of where you place certain parts of your application. You know, I, I think, you know, some of these I've not articles... seen the UML diagrams for, for, <laughs> for like, for RX FRP. or FFRP, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's a totally different animal. Yeah, um, well, that's that's what I'm getting to. Like, that's it, that that's the one that's like kind of out there compared to everything else. Right. It doesn't and, like fit with how UI and all stuff was designed. So what 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 ahead of time says FRP seems right for this app? I think it's a style choice. I think if it's something that you have developed you've gotten past the learning curve and there is quite a steep learning curve um you know you like a lot of people who do reactive extensions you know there's probably a month-long learning curve like you know right away you can probably copy some code and do some basic stuff but you might not really understand it 
you know, if you're using something like Arc Swift, like what the heck is a dispose bag or, um, you know, things like that, like, you know, it takes a little while, you know, some things are thread safe, some things aren't. Uh, so learning like good and, and bad practices of those. But once you're past the learning curve, then, you know, you can feel fairly confident in, in using that technique. And you're probably going to, if, if it's a technique you like, you're probably going to choose that because it's what you're comfortable with. I think that's what a lot of it comes down to. Like for us, you know, in, in consulting, you know, we tend to stay away from things that have too steep of a learning curve because at the end of the day, you know, the code is going to the client and, you know, they may be maintaining that code. And if we create this unnecessary learning curve, it's, it's not going to be very well maintained. So we tend to be somewhat cautious about adopting things that are a little bit too beyond standard that is going to prevent like an average developer from picking it up. But you're making trade-offs between your know, perceived productivity and eliminating certain types of bugs, but you're mm-hmm. probably trading that those some bugs for another type of bugs. Um, you never completely chase all the bugs out. I don't know if you want to code to the lowest common developer. No, no. It, it's the balance, though. It's the you want to have enough structure that it's it's logical and easily maintained without over engineering. It's, it's, it's a balance between over and under engineering an application. And to some degree that just comes with experience where that right balance is. Um, you know, as developers, we often try and go to the newest, coolest thing and not really worry about the people that come after us. Yeah, I get a sense sometimes that people are like, oh, I just figured out RX Swift finally. I'm gonna do do all my apps in it now, or something like that. Yeah, and th- and that's fine as long as you understand the the cost that goes along with it. If if you're building the apps for yourself, or you know you're the developer and you're the one that's going to maintain it, then you know it's really up to you if if that's the style that you want. You know, with FRP, you get into the situation where you've got these somewhat conflicting models um, because you like you said UI kit or app kit wasn't designed for FRP so to some degree you're you're or like if you're using flexbox and you're like I'm just going to replace auto layout I'm doing something completely different like why would you start there I had I just oh facebook did that I a know. couple of times <laughs> They've done that a few times, yeah, but they, they also have armies of engineers. Interesting so. things, yeah. I guess they needed something to do with all those people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I tend to try and stick as close to what Apple provides as possible, mostly because I know it's probably going to be there years from now, and there's plenty of books and, and blogs that, you know, somebody new coming in would be able to learn it. Um, you know, yeah, you've I, been... There is one project that you talk to us about quite frequently that, you know, you picked, a, or whoever started it, I don't think it was even you, no. picked a framework, an early framework that was very opinionated and, you know, it stopped development years ago and you were yeah. stuck there for a long time because it took a lot to change away from that. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was one of those frameworks that, you know, it just, it touched so many different things because it was trying to do just about everything 
that getting pulling it out uh, it was very difficult. Yeah, there you really do have to take into consideration when you're using a library. That's fine. It's not such a big deal, say, to pull out something like AF networking and replace it with Alamo Fire or some other networking stack du jour. But yeah, when your app is wrapped inside of that framework, like say RX Swift is, any any app that uses RX Swift really becomes an RX Swift app. And so you, you have to take into consideration that this is a big part of your app. It's going to be right. everywhere. Yeah. And the, the one thing, the one way to think about Arc Swift, though, is it really should be the boundaries between the layers. So, you know, between uh, the, the application logic and the networking, you know, is one, one of those boundaries where Arc Swift plays nicely. And then potentially between the, the model, the controller, and, and the view. Um, on Android, I, you know, I think a lot of people stay away from using RX on the view because there's already uh, a built-in view bindings. Yeah, well, yeah, they introduced data binding this past year, and it is good. I have actually had the opportunity to experience it, but there's definitely some voodoo magic that goes on and it kind of reminds me of some of the old C++ MFC days where you basically just, <laughs> your your application was one giant set of macros. <laughs> so, so I'm glad you brought it up, MFC, because what? that's... <laughs> <laughs> Who's ever because, glad about that? <laughs> because all these, not all, but a lot of these cool new programs are, are uh, design patterns really came from Microsoft decades ago. Like MVVM is not new. Um you know, MVP is not new. Those those came from Microsoft back in like document management uh, software days. It it's it, it's interesting to see those patterns become popular again applied to mobile development. Yeah. So. So is those in in those MV star or M star patterns? You know, we're really not seeing a whole lot of. Uh, really not seeing anything new it's really when we get into these functional and reactive applications you know those are somewhat new but which uh, comes it, from microsoft again but in in some well, sense because well, f sharp uh rx yeah you're right uh reactive extensions uh, yeah. was it came from uh from dot net it was a dot net thing yeah. uh, but the the yeah. concepts go back to things that are outside of Microsoft, so right. to make people feel a little bit better. Yeah, I think I think <laughs> Uncle Bob, man, uh, <laughs> poor Microsoft people. Uncle Bob had a nice little rant about uh, kind of like you know why are you guys getting all worked up about all these new things because they're not really new. You know, don't don't throw away the tried and true because this new thing is is going to solve all your problems because. It's it's not new and it's not going to solve every problem. Well, that that comes down to this classic thing, where we always decide that something has gotten too big, too crafty, and I can do this other thing 
or I can do that same thing in this other language or other tool much faster because it doesn't have all that cruft. And Ruby was that way to Java 10 years ago, and now Node is that way to Ruby. And at some point soon, that something is going builds, to... Yeah, that cruft yeah. all builds back up, though. Because you yeah. need it. You find like, oh, I actually did need all that things. stuff. <laughs> yeah. Huh. yeah. It's just an interesting cycle in our industry. And, you know, I, I, I'm glad... Yeah, and I'm glad at least that that people are excited about architecture again and and talking about how to build more robust apps and um, you know also thinking about how can we be more efficient in how we build apps. Yeah, I do. I would argue though that with each new succession of technologies that comes through, we have this bar that keeps getting raised that says, well, in order for me to want to adopt this thing it has to at least do this stuff. And that bar keeps getting higher as we go through. So I think a lot of that is around the tooling and really language uh, syntactic sugar, probably more than anything else. Yeah, One, various like, things in the ecosystem, yeah. And I think an interesting corollary to that is there's also, damn, iPhone notifications. There's also like a... Uh, law of diminishing returns it seems to be in effect too and that you know we can only get so much better every time there's one of these new big changes into the ways that things go and it seems like every new thing we're getting is, is less and less like of an improvement over whatever the last thing was i don't know do you guys see that too or well you know we, the the amount of things you have to set up in order to build an application you know, it's definitely a much more complicated uh, or it can be much more complicated, you know, build tools and, you know, CI and running your unit tests. And, you know, there's a lot to just getting started, um, and, you know, versus just, you know, like Go, for example, right now, you just create a, a simple executable and run it, you know, on, <laughs> on whatever platform you build it for. So like, though they can be rather large executables because... Yeah, it doesn't have it, well, shared can... libraries. They're all static. Right. Yeah, it, it's a fat binary if you've got multiple architectures, probably. And uh, yeah, single, I mean... single binary per architecture. But okay, yeah, yeah, it's it's just everything is a static library. So even the Go runtime, it's all statically compiled into your application, and so it's you can have a an application with say ten twenty files, but it's 50 megabytes because it uses a whole lot of external dependencies. Right. Which might be fine if you're building a server application or, or sure. something else. And, you know, 50 megabytes isn't that big of a deal when running on a server. Yeah. But it, it's, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's trade-offs and, um, you know, as, as you build more mature, more robust applications, the, the, build system and and deployment and everything gets more and more complicated and we look for ways of simplifying that and then we come up with something new to make it complicated again well, so. yeah, even the libraries that things come with you know, java way back in the 90s was pretty revolutionary because it came with an http client and a way to serve up websites right out well, of the box and also had threads built in as a concept yeah and you know that all, was 
kind of do. And, you know, we went from multiple processors to multiple cores. So threading's become more and more of a, of a challenge and, and kind of a, a necessity of an application. Yeah. But would you ever think to take up a new language that didn't have a TCP kind of stack built into it? Right. Right. You know, for a while, like garbage collection was like, I don't want to do memory <laughs> management anymore. I want garbage collection. But yeah, which is still like, a thing in Go, but yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we wouldn't go, want to go back to manual memory management. And now that we have Arc, because it's a nice compromise. Right. Yeah. And so the next thing that comes along is going to have to at least have Arc at, at a bare minimum or garbage collection. So, yes, I, I'll agree that uh, what our expectations are continues to grow. Uh, and we go in these cycles. So I did want to give you guys, after all this... Uh, very in-depth talk. I wanted to let you guys know that our favorite game, the uh, paper Universal Paperclips game, uh, they just announced that it's coming to iOS, so you'll be able to play on your iPads now. <laughs> oh, that's... Yay. <laughs> <laughs> that's... So if you, if you didn't... If you didn't want to... If you wanted to spend all your time, you know, thinking about what design patterns to use and stuff like that, now, now you, while you're pondering, you can play Paperclips on your phone yeah. whenever it comes out. <laughs> I've moved on from Paperclips to eggs, so... I tried that egg game. Not an egg fan? No. Just real um, eggs, not cyber eggs. Well, as far as I know, you don't actually go into space, so... That's oh. a little bit of a... That's a little bit of a... Spoiler alert. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, Alex. <laughs> They do talk about space chickens. In- they do. I've got. I've See, got I never the, played the egg game. I've got the tachyon eggs now, so I can travel <laughs> time. What is? Is it Egg Inc? Is that the game you're talking about now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I started playing that. You can play offline, uh, for the most part. So I was playing that on the airplane. It's a much nicer in- interface than the Paperclips game, Paperclips web version. Yeah, it's reasonably well done, and I will say that I have watched an incredibly large number of commercials playing it because you get <laughs> bonus yeah, um, money or whatever uh, every for every video you watch, every commercial you watch. They did say that there would be no in-app purchases in the iOS Paperclips game, and hopefully if they're making it for iOS, it'll have some of those presentation niceties that, that Eggs Inc. has, so we'll have to check that out when it comes out. <laughs> yep. Another battery-draining game. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I think that's about all the time we have left this week. So why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. And I'm at Sam Corder. I'm at Alex Argo, and you can find the podcast at Shared Inst. Uh, if you want to join us in our Slack and, and chat about design patterns or architectures or any of that cool stuff, uh, just go to Paperclips too. Go to chat.sharedinstance.com to get a Slack invite. Uh, and we'll talk to you guys soon. All right, see you.